If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them to Ruth chapter 1 as we continue our study through the book of Ruth. Last week, we saw that our love story here in the Bible uh, began with sin and death, oddly enough. That a man named Elimelech, whose name meant, my God is king, left his hometown of Bethlehem, which meant house of bread, seeking bread outside the promised land. And that he paid for that decision with his own life as he died, as well as his two sons died. Um, his sons had gotten married to Moabite wives. Um, and so all that's left is Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And we saw that if we pursue fullness of life in the will of God, He will show us His loving kindness. And so we're going to continue in that thread to see that to be true uh, here in our second passage in the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 1. If last week was a display of Naomi's repentance towards God's loving kindness, then tonight... Uh, we're going to see the display of Ruth's commitment to join Naomi in her pursuit of that fullness of life in the will of God. So let's look together at Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 18 say this. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord, Yahweh, has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Lord God, would you teach us now of what a commitment that clings truly looks like for our lives as it was for Ruth to Naomi. God, would you teach us through this uh, Bible narrative? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled tonight's sermon, A Commitment That Clings. A Commitment That Clings. And I want to draw our attention to Ruth's actions and words to study the nature of this commitment. It says in verse 14 that Ruth clung to Naomi. And then in verses 16 and 17, it gives us one of the most beautiful declarations of anyone in the Old Testament. As she says, for where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth has a commitment that clings. But what does a commitment that clings entail? Well, first, I want you to see a commitment that clings is focused on the one who blesses more than the blessing. A commitment that clings is focused on the one who blesses more than the blessing. Our passage tonight begins with verse 7. They went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law left the fields of Moab and were on their way to Bethlehem in Judah when all of a sudden, Naomi turns to them and, and tells them to go back. They've already begun on their journey towards Bethlehem and now Naomi turns to Ruth and Orpah and says, No, go back to Moab. You see, seeking bread in Bethlehem was the right choice for Naomi, but she comes to a crossroads in determining whether that's the right choice for Ruth and Orpah. Her people were not their people. Her God was not their God. She could have been asking any number of questions in her head. How could she bring Ruth and Orpah along with her when she could not guarantee their well-being? How could she presume on her extended family that they would support the three of them? Why would she want to bring them along when they were a constant reminder of her rebellion and the deathly consequence of that rebellion? How would she be viewed by others? bringing Moabite women back home with her, proving her lack of faith in Yahweh to provide for her and her family all those years ago. No, they'd be far better off in the land of Moab, she thought to herself. So she spoke a twofold blessing over her daughters-in-law. The first of the twofold blessing was, may the Lord deal 
kindly with you. May the Lord deal kindly with you. God is kind out of an abundance of who he is. And that kindness is felt by all. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that our Father in heaven makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That there is a sense that the Lord is kind, generally speaking, to all people. But his loving kindness, what the Hebrew translates from hesed, is felt by his covenant people. God goes out of his way to be kind to those who are his in a special way. Naomi is asking God to be lovingly kind to her Moabite daughters-in-law, those who are outside the covenant. She notes their kindness towards her in her time of grief. She lost her husband and two sons. Well, that grief is unimaginable. We can see how the blow is softened by the presence of her daughters-in-law and that they can share in her sadness and mourning. They were kind to be present with her in her grief, and that is something she deeply appreciated in them. And that type of kindness invites the loving kindness of God. And then the second of the twofold blessing is the Lord grant that you may find rest. The Lord grant that you may find rest. Uh, we've learned quite a bit about rest, haven't we? From our uh, series on work and rest that we just completed before our study through the book of Ruth. And it's beautiful to see how Naomi desires rest for her daughters-in-law. But this isn't necessarily the same rest that we've been studying in weeks past. This is Minucha. It is rest in the sense of a safe shelter. In the days of the judges, the position of an unmarried woman or a young widow was perilous. The one place they could find safety was in the house of a husband. Otherwise, she would fall victim to neglect, servitude, or oppression. What Naomi is asking God to grant Ruth and Orpah is rest in the form of stability. And isn't that what we want most? That as young adults in our 20s and 30s, we strive after some form of stability, and so often we are left wanting. And I feel this on a real and tangible level as I reflect that over the past 10 years, I have lived at 12 different places. Don't hear that as a complaint because I've enjoyed all of those places, but at the same time, none of them provided minutia. They were safe in that I could lock my doors at night but there was very little stability. At any moment, I could pack up my 2013 Ford Fiesta and be on my way to the next place. Many of you may be in a similar position. 
You'd love nothing more than to own your own home, to have a special someone greet you as you come to them and embrace them after a hard day of work. Then you can establish some type of rhythm in life to produce the most fulfilling and efficient results possible. Does your vision account for the realities of this world? Are they delusions of grandeur? Because the truth is, if you chase after these things in and of themselves, you will find quite the opposite of rest. You will inevitably find the exact opposite of what you want most. And so as a, just a pastor trying to care for you, I want to remind you of something we found from our series on the Sermon on the Mount, that you would seek true stability in God's kingdom by leaning on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Seek true stability in God's kingdom by leaning on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Remember the final passage of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But there's a flip side to that. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Seek true stability in God's kingdom by leaning on the teachings of Jesus Christ. If you focus on applying Jesus' instructions as he gives them to his disciples, you will find greater stability than any location, any person, any job, any schedule could possibly provide. And what you may also find that in God's timing, he has provided those other things while you weren't even paying attention because you were so focused on kingdom-minded stability. Second thing about a commitment that clings that I want to draw your attention to is that a commitment that clings, and this is going to sound strange, a commitment that clings is inspired by feelings more than facts. A commitment that clings is inspired by feelings more than facts. Even after Naomi's twofold blessing, neither Ruth nor Orpah wanted to turn back. So Naomi urges them a second time. And in the second exchange, she makes a sound yet slightly aggressive argument. Go back. I have no more sons to give. This is the scene in the movie where you start to reach for the Kleenex out of the purse because it's about to get emotional. Right? Naomi is acting out of a complicated combination of both self-interest and consideration for her, those that she loves. And it reminds me of a scene from a beloved childhood film. 
1997 classic Airbud. If you don't know Airbud, that's about a stray dog that becomes an all-star basketball player for a small town team and befriends a shy boy who's new to the area. And there's a part in the movie where the main character, Josh, uh, gives a snack pack pudding to Buddy, the dog. And after this um, nice gesture, caring for the dog, he tells him to get, get out of here, go home. And it's so emotional that if you saw it and you didn't cry, then you're, you, I'm convinced you're a robot. <laughs> Naomi wants the best for her two daughters-in-law. And what seems best is that they would return to Moab. And she makes a valid point. I'm too old. You cannot wait for me to remarry and have kids and hope that it's a son to grow up and one day marry. You see, this was a practice of Israel called leveret marriage, where the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow to provide for her and carry on his lineage. By Naomi's assessment, there's no way. So she says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There are some people who are so convinced that the Lord is against them that they become disenchanted and in turn blinded from what he could do. We know all things are possible with God. She's become disenchanted and in her grief and her mourning and blinded even to what he could do. Her perception is that Yahweh has gone out of his way to inflict emotional pain upon her. And we see this when people deal with the passing of a loved one, don't we? In fact, we may have even heard some Christians talk like this. And so I, I want to give you just what do we do as people who are trying to mourn with those who mourn? I commend to you, we would be prudent not to correct one's theology in a moment of grief, but instead prove right theology in our presence. We would be prudent not to correct one's theology in a moment of grief, but instead prove right theology with our presence. It doesn't require us to utter off some spiritual platitude. It really just requires us to be present with people in order to mourn with those who mourn. Uh, case in point, Job. Job lost everything. The book of Job tells us that Job lost his um, estate. He lost his family. Uh, Strangely enough, he's left with his wife who tells him to curse God and die. And so in his grief, all he has is a group of friends. And for a few weeks, they're really good friends. And then they open their mouths. And the rest of the book of Job is just argument after argument after argument. We can be better friends than that. 
all that is required of us as we have a loved one or a friend grieving that we would just be there. We don't have to say anything. Don't say, I've been there. That's not going to help. Just be there. God will correct Naomi's theology in time and draw her out of that disenchantment that she's suffering from. He's going to do it by miraculously providing for her far beyond her wildest dreams. So let's focus on how Ruth and Orpah respond to this emotional charge from Naomi. It says in verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, that is to say goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Here we see two responses. One is a cordial goodbye. The other is a desperate plea. Orpah shows us the logical response. One made out of considering all the facts. Ruth shows us the heartfelt response. In fact, the word clung there is the same Hebrew word used in relation to a husband and wife in Genesis 2, 24, as it says, he would hold fast to her wife and the two will become one flesh. Hold fast. And we learn what it means to be human from Ruth. I learn what it means to be human from Ruth. As I reckon, what would I do in this scenario as someone who likes to be logically minded about things? I would be Orpah, considering all the facts. But here Ruth, in a desperate plea, shows us what feelings can do. We are feeling creatures. We cannot escape it, nor should we. While feelings aren't everything, neither is logic. And I almost can't believe I'm saying that. They, feelings find their right place in submission to the lordship of Christ. And that's where we see Ruth take her feelings. Under the lordship of Yahweh. As we see our next point, a commitment that clings is initiated with words more than works. A commitment that clings is initiated with words more than works. Notice what Ruth says in verses 16 and 17. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Feelings find their rightful place in submission to the Lord. She invokes the name of Yahweh in her oath to Naomi. She knows Naomi's God. And she commits to him with her words. 
She has done nothing for Yahweh up to this point. She can do nothing for Yahweh. In the same way, when the Lord finds us, we have nothing for him but our sin. We contribute nothing to our salvation but our sin. The simple command given to us is repent, turn, believe, and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Our words. Our commitment to follow Jesus is initiated with our words because the work has already been accomplished. Picture Jesus on the cross, pouring his life out for you and for me as he cries out to Telestai, it is finished. Your debt is paid in full. He laid out his life for his bride, the church. And the church consists of all who call on him to save them from their sins. This is illustrated to us in how a bride and groom exchange vows at their wedding. In that moment, they are promising each other what they will do, not what they have done. It will be followed by action. But the, at the beginning of holy matrimony, all that can be said is, I will. You are promising that you will love someone even after the feelings fade. Yes, feelings inspire commitment, but they hardly keep it going. What keeps a commitment going after the feelings dissipate is a promise. And there we find love is a commitment. Don't lose sight of that. Love is a commitment. If anyone falls out of love in their marriage, their only option is not divorce. It is repentance. Remembrance. Remember what you have committed and walk in step of that commitment. Love is exemplified in commitments like that of a bride and a groom. And even like that of a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, of Ruth and Naomi. While a commitment that clings is initiated with words, it bears fruit in works. Eventually, Ruth unfastened herself from Naomi and followed her to Bethlehem. And so we see a commitment that clings is proven by authenticity more than appearance. A commitment that clings is proven by authenticity more than appearance. Ruth didn't put on a show. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, she was silenced. Ruth delivered a 
beautiful declaration of commitment. One we hear quoted at weddings and see embroidered on pillows. And Naomi was silent. We might expect that Naomi would embrace Ruth, wrap her up in her arms, and give us a precious phrase like, sweet Ruth, you've never left my side. But that's not what we get. Naomi doesn't say a word. Ruth declares her undying love for her mother-in-law, and Naomi has a stiff upper lip. She knows Ruth is not putting on a show. Her determination is authentic. So nothing else needs to be said. I find myself asking a rather simple question and reflecting on this text. Do I cling to Christ the way Ruth clings to Naomi? Do I cling to Christ the way Ruth clings to Naomi? It's not necessarily asking if my commitment looks like I cling to Christ, but do I actually cling to Christ in my commitment to him? In John 6, we hear Jesus call himself. He says, I am the bread of life. If you were here last week, you heard me mention this, that it's It's not by coincidence that the God-man Jesus called himself the bread of life and he was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Well, John 6 is the text that shows us that. But even in looking at how he calls himself the bread of life, he tells his disciples, more than just the 12, but all those that were following him up at that point, that you would have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you wanted to inherit eternal life. Needless to say, that's a little confusing, Jesus. And so many in that crowd, many of his disciples who had followed him up to that point, left him. They departed. John 6, verses 66 through 69 tell us, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter and and the disciples had a commitment that clings. They cared more for Jesus than any one of his miracles. They were able to look past the fact that Jesus said, You will have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood because their feelings were submitted to his authority. We hear Peter declare with his lips that they believe he is the Holy One of God. 
And it isn't just a show because the disciples would go on to be persecuted and killed for following Jesus Christ. Reflect on your commitment to the Lord. Do you have a commitment that clings? And the way that you can look at Jesus and say, where else would I go? What else is there? You alone have the words of eternal life. So the main takeaway for tonight is that you would cling to the Lord and your commitment to follow him wherever he takes you. Cling to the Lord in your commitment to follow him wherever he takes you. You heard me say, we're a ministry that equips and sends people with the gospel. The truth that Jesus died and rose from the grave is power that we tap into as we follow Christ, as he makes us born again, that we would live a life of abundance as he calls us into it. But that gospel equips us and sends us. But for us as young adults, where does he send us? We have four areas of calling in mind that we enjoy equipping and sending young adults into. Four areas of calling. Most of you, if you desire to be married, then you will be sent into godly marriages with the gospel. Some of you may feel the calling towards vocational ministry, maybe to become a pastor or a missionary, that you would be sent into that calling with the gospel. A large amount of you are in the secular workplace, marketplace. And we know that we're sending you with the gospel into that global marketplace so that as you reveal the excellencies of Jesus Christ in the workplace, you would be promoted up and out of that organization and probably out of the city of Memphis to the glory of God. And if nothing else, we want to equip and send you into spiritual maturity as you become whole disciples of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, Cling to the Lord and your commitment to follow him wherever that takes you. Whichever one of those callings that you want to you you pursue, we exist to come alongside you in that calling and equip and send you out with the gospel. The same thing that equips you is the same thing that sends you. It's the power of God unto salvation. Cling to the Lord and your commitment to follow him wherever it takes you. Is it a commitment that clings the way Ruth clung to Naomi? May our commitment to God be focused on him. At times, flared up with emotion. Declared with our words and followed through with our actions. And proven to be authentic to the very end. May we have a commitment that clings.